0: Ladies, uh, it's always uh, good to hear you ladies sing. Um, thank you, Mark, for doing a great job. Uh, I'd rather have Jesus. I don't know if you or Anne picked that song, but that's one of my favorites. And what a fitting time of the year to sing that uh, than at Christmas time, where oftentimes our attention is anywhere but Jesus. And so, uh, a good word, a good word this morning. So, thank you, guys. Uh, this morning, I wonder what is the definition of a mature believer. What is a mature believer? I mean, if you had to describe a mature believer to your kids, where would you start? When you think of a mature believer, who do you envision? What do you envision? Indulge me for just a minute. I want you to take your bulletin out. Hopefully, you got a bulletin on your way in. And so, take that guy out. Um, we're going to be interactive this morning. And when you take that out, you can open it up and turn to the, the top left segment of the bulletin. And it says, Welcome Guest. Underneath Welcome Guest, you see a, a word of welcome to our guest, right? And you see our, our church mission statement there proclaiming God's word to make. And mature believers now you guys understand we have talked about this a lot that that we don't believe that as a pastor that I can make a believer right we understand based upon the Word of God that no individual can make a believer but only by the power by the providence and the sovereign call of God upon one's life can one receive Christ but we have a role and responsibility to proclaim right how are they to hear unless someone shares right that's not the point of the sermon. Make mature believers. Our second portion of that slogan is mature believers. We state this a lot to make immature believers. But I wonder, can you articulate what a mature believer is? So I want you to take a pen. There should be some pens on the pew rack in front of you there. I want you to take a pen. And just across the top of your bulletin, you can write this out, but I'm going to give you 30 seconds. We'll give you 30 seconds to write down. I got my phone out so I can time it because I can't count to 30. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to write out a definition of a mature believer. Ready, set, go. all right that was 30 seconds some of you needed like three hours some of you only needed three seconds right and some of you're like I'm not doing that I'm too cool for school right okay so whatever but here's the deal can you articulate a mature believer because if this is one of the aspirations or the aspiration I believe of our church that we want mature believers then we better understand what a mature believer is or else we're just spitting in the wind right I mean, what are we seeking to accomplish? When Alan called me on Thursday afternoon and Volan told me that I got to preach this morning, I had several options that went through my mind as I hung up the phone, right? Like I could Google a sermon, and I think, you know, that happens every week, so let's try something different. Um, And so, you know, I could preach something that I've already written, Uh, Or I could, you know, piggyback on the Sunday school lesson, which was Daniel 7. I was like, "Eh, I don't know. I could share something from my quiet time, which has been Ezekiel, which I'm like, you know. Or I could jump into some things that I've just been personally wrestling with lately. And so I kind of stand on the shoulders of the reformers who believe that the preacher must first preach the passage and the message to themselves before the congregation. I thought that's a good place to be since I am you and you are me. Like, hey, maybe some other people are struggling with this as well. And so I've been wrestling with this, this thought, this understanding of what does it mean to be a mature believer? Can I articulate that? Can we as a church agree on what that looks like? And so I began to, to just kind of unpack and to, and to think about what it would mean to be a mature believer. Believer, this morning we stand or sit in your case two days from 2020. That's crazy. That sounds like a make-believe time, right? 2020, and many of us will either formally or informally make some New Year's resolutions, right? Anybody already made some resolutions? Nobody does that anymore. All right, a couple of people. I see the hand in the back. Okay, Um, so we'll make these New Year's resolutions, and so I thought, what a what a fitting opportunity or moment to talk about spiritual maturity as we as people are kind of naturally just thinking about hey how can i be better in 2020 than i was in 2019 and so i pray that this morning that we will understand and have a clearer picture as to what it means to be a mature believer. Paul exhorts uh, Colossians in 1:28. he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul goes on in verse 29 of Colossians to say that it is hard work. You see, as Christians, it is hard work. And I think that many in our day, we don't like hard work. We're like, "Ah, I want something easy. But the Christian life, friends, is not easy. But praise the Lord, Paul goes on in 29 to say, it's hard work that is only possible by the Holy Spirit. Thank God for the Holy Spirit that indwells us as followers of Christ, that carries us, that guides us, that directs us. That opens our eyes to the Word of God. That opens our eyes to the sin that indwells us. The desire of the leadership of this church is to glorify God by introducing people to Jesus and helping people obey the Word of God. You see, I think another way of saying Christian maturity is to say biblical obedience. Those are two words that are not cool in our day and age, right? The Bible or obedience. And I wonder, is that true of us today? As God fears, as followers of Christ, assembled together to worship the name of Christ, are we welcoming of the thought of biblical obedience? The problem for many of us Christians in being obedient is that we are ignorant. Now, I like the word ignorant. Right? The word ignorant means lacking knowledge, information, or awareness about a particular thing. Now, my wife tells me right, that people don't really like that term. It's offensive. Right? And so I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm not trying to be just, you know, I'm not trying to be that. Right? And, you know, maybe I am, but I'm not trying to. And I, I wonder, are we okay with the term ignorant. You see, I use the term ignorant because I try to use an economy of words at times to cut through the noise of what it means from God's Word. And I, I think that you may be very intelligent, right? You may be able to read and write and do all host of activities very well, but that doesn't mean that you're not ignorant in areas of your life. Like, I've got a bachelor's degree from the University of Tennessee, I've got a master's degree from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, but yet I'm very ignorant in lots of things in life. Last night, I was at Lowe's, and it was proof to me that I'm ignorant, right? Like, I spent an hour looking for an element that it just didn't even make sense to me. I'm trying to remodel a, a bathroom at my house, and somebody in the church has been very gracious and helping me, and helped me make a list of supplies, right? And it was like a scavenger hunt. I was in the right store, But I was like, you know, Uh, and so I was, I'm very ignorant about a lot of things. And I wonder, are you too prideful to admit that you don't know something? That there are areas of life that you're just uneducated and you're not aware of. How does ignorance affect our obedience? You see, I think we as Christians lack knowledge of understanding. Not that we don't know how to read or write but that we don't have a clear understanding of what the Bible expects of those who give their life to Christ. And so we try to do the Cliff Notes version, right? Like we try to watch other people. Maybe we try to watch our parents because it's a lot easier to watch the movie than to read the book. And therefore our foundation is off kilter. We, we're not settled because we don't know what the book says, therefore we can't live up to its standard. And so this morning, my desire is, is really not to necessarily share anything like earth shattering with you, but to help clarify, to help bring... A picture, to help bring a, a presentation, to help bring a, a list, a New Year's resolution that would set out goals that would not just allow you to have a phenomenal year, but that would allow you to be in closer obedience and biblical obedience with your Heavenly Father. And so I this morning want us to, to try to unpack that. I want to, to try to teach you, I want to try to make it clear unto you what God desires. Of us. As you look at your definition there before you, right, that you wrote out about uh, spiritual maturity, biblical maturity, right, as you wrote that out, can you validate that statement from God's Word? Can you, as you look at what you wrote on the page, can you validate that from God's Word? You know, not that God's Word says, but can you quote Moses, can you quote Paul? Can you quote Jesus? Can you quote what the text actually says? Therefore, it's in your definition. You see, I want to help us be clear that the Bible has an expectation for us. Leviticus 19.2 and 1 Peter 1.16 both tell us, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. The work of God by which he makes us holy We call sanctification. That's a big word, meaning we become more like Christ. And this morning, I want us to spend a few minutes looking at some specific examples of expectations our Lord has for his children. Turn with me to 1 Timothy. Today we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we see that, that Paul is the author of 1 Timothy, right? It's one of his um, pastoral epistles, right? And he's writing it to his, his son in the faith, young Timothy, and he's writing it to encourage Timothy, right? And so this passage, I believe, is going to give us some insight into an expectation of what a spiritually mature individual looks like you see I could have picked almost any of Paul's letters right because all of Paul's letters like they have a don't do this but be this within them that's why we love Paul right because he's 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 specific and he tells us what's going on and what shouldn't be going on in our midst and so I am drawn to this passage because like I said God has just been bringing me to this list right to this passage here lately, and, and I, I want to share it with you guys, and I want to, to give us some encouragement from it. So look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 7. I'll read it for us. Read along in your copy of God's Word. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For someone does not know how to manage his own household, how we care for God's church. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil moreover he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil now to be clear paul here is giving qualifications a job description for elders or overseers however as i read this text and many others like it i don't see paul saying no one else in the church should aspire to these things i think as we think about what does it mean to be a mature believer, and I would think that most of us in here would say we are a follower of Christ. We've professed Christ at some point in our life. I think that there's nothing in this list that isn't for you. So let's look at it here. You see on the screen behind me these 14 um, attributes that are listed here in these seven verses. I would say that if anyone aspires to be a faithful Christian, he or she will have the following 14 attributes. Above reproach, faithfully married, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, sober, gentle, peaceful, content, manage household, care for the church, good reputation. I put these on the screen behind me because maybe you want to take your bulletin because maybe you don't have a journal because you've not gotten one yet. That didn't come in your stocking. And so maybe you want to turn to the back of your bulletin where there's a little white space right there. And maybe you just want to write down these 14 attributes that Paul lays out. And I've changed the wording of some of them, and I'll talk about that here in just a moment. But maybe you just need to write down these 14 attributes that are laid out in God's Word of an expectation of followers of Him and just rate yourself. Give yourself a 1 to 10 rating, right? Like 1 being horrible, 10 being amazing. Just rate yourself in these 14 categories. Maybe that's all you need to do today, right? And that, maybe the Holy Spirit would, would work a miracle in your life by you just judging yourself by the Word of God. Not by your bank account, not by your Instagram posts, but by the Word of God. And so I'm not going to take this up. I'm not going to take your definition up, right? This is just for you. But maybe you just need to write those down and just give yourself a score. Maybe you're a 3. Maybe you're a 9. I don't know. But how would you rate yourself in these 14 characteristics, these attributes that Paul describes of a faithful, obedient follower of Christ? I think I need to clean up a statement that I made just a minute ago. If you are a follower of Christ, then you must aspire To be a faithful christian i don't want to leave wiggle room in there to think well i you know this is just like for super christian people this isn't for me friends if we say yes to christ we stop getting to come up with any other rules we don't get to make the rules so when we lay our lives down before christ and we say i can't only christ can when we do that we nullify we We push aside our ability to be Lord of our life. And we say, okay, God, what have you got for us? And so God, being so kind, so gracious, so merciful, so sweet, so tender, he lays out his revealed will for us. And he tells us what he expects of those who claim to be followers of his. And so, church, are we willing to play by his rules? Are we willing to follow him? Are we willing to set goals spiritually for our lives? So, this passage could be a three-month series easily. We're not going to be here that long, I promise. Um, so today, I will not do justice to these seven verses. I, I promise you that. I know that. But I do want us just to walk through, and if nothing else, this list is going to be up the whole service. I want you to see in in a in bite-sized pieces what it means to be a mature follower of christ these things and many more right the bible there like i said there are lists there are all kinds of lists in scripture that i could have gone to i just chose this one because i think it was bite sized and manageable but are we aspiring to these things so we're just going to take the remainder of our time and we're just going to walk through these 14 attributes And I pray that the Holy Spirit would challenge us individually where we are. We're not all at the same place. We're not all at the same pace. But I pray that God would challenge us, convict us, and encourage us by his word. So the first one you see there, above reproach. Notice that the first and the last attributes deal with how others see you. I think this first one is more introspective, and the, and the last one is more communal, but I, I think it's, it's imperative that we see that, that others are watching us, right? It's not just the, the kids in your home. It's not just the people that you're related to. Your neighbors are watching you. People are watching you as you do life. As I walk around Lowe's, frustrated, can't find anybody to help me because I know I'm ignorant, right, like... I won't call this guy's name out, but he just abandoned me, okay? I'll just be honest. Like, I was on aisle 13, and he abandoned me, right? And so I'm not bitter about it. I've let it go. Um, But people are watching. People are watching to see how do we respond when things don't go our way. And so as we think about this being above reproach, I wonder, does, does our life, our actions, our attitudes, our words, do they match up With what God's Word says are we above reproach not that you're perfect right I think we should desire perfection and we could get into an argument about is that even possible and what does Paul mean by that but we should aspire to be like Christ are we above reproach and I I said this often but one of the key things to that I think is not that you're perfect but that you're willing to admit when you're not perfect Do you admit fault? Do you admit failures? Do you admit mistakes? Do you evaluate your life based on the word of God? Is there anything in your life that would bring shame and disgrace upon the name of Christ? Could any accusation against you stick? Praise God that he is faithful to forgive us cry out to him. Seek repentance. Seek forgiveness for those things, right? We've all got them in our life. Are we laying them at the foot of our Savior? Number two there, faithfully married. Now, Paul actually says husband of one wife. Once again, he's writing to overseers and elders, but for our context, for our conversation here, I'm saying faithfully married, all right? Now, I know some of us in here are single, and I'm not striving to insult or shame or any of that stuff. I'm merely picking up on the message of God's Word cover to cover that the normal practice of followers of God is to be married, okay? Now, we live in a fallen world, and everything is not idealistic. However, we see that the normative is that people of God are married. Okay, and so you may be in here and you're single, you want to be married, you may be in here singled and you wish you were still married. I'm not here to insult you, I'm not here to to judge you, I'm simply saying that God's desire is for us to be faithfully married. Now, he has called people to singleness, Paul was single, Jesus was single. Those are great examples, right? But just, this isn't a message on, on marriage, but if you're called to singleness, you're called to singleness to serve. Not to seek your own self-gratification. So, God, cover to cover, starting in Genesis all the way through the end, he talks about that he desires for his people to be married. And I wonder, are you faithful? Are you faithful in your marriage? Marriage is under attack in our day and age. Right? Like, it, it grieves my heart of how many of you are struggling in your marriage. And you're not telling anybody. You're not telling anybody that your marriage is suffering it's struggling can I can I just say seek help, throw up a flare, throw up a life right do something to get help if your marriage is not biblical it's not glorifying the Father, it's not good seek help okay there's no shame in that. we all need help in life and so we're about to have a marriage retreat, and we'll have 30 or 40 couples on it, and it'll be an amazing. I love the marriage retreat. It's like, anyway, it's awesome. But you know what is crazy about the marriage retreat? We'll joke about that, and, you know, we've all got jokes about marriage, and usually they're degrading to the Word of God and what God's Word says about marriage. But you know that the 30 or 40 couples that will be on the marriage retreat here in a couple of weeks, almost, and I don't know who's going, but I've been on them in the past, probably 80 to 90% of those marriages are awesome. They're biblical rock stars, but they're still going on the marriage retreat. That's why their marriages are awesome. And too many of us sit back and be like, well, you know, if I go, people think my marriage is in trouble. Your marriage is in trouble. You don't have to tell anybody that. There's not a single thing I know about mine and Stephanie's marriage that's bad. But I know we're in trouble. We're one decision. We're one thought. We're one mistake away from it being tragic. We need help. We need help. We are to be faithfully married. Are you faithful to your spouse? Would your kids say you're faithful? Or do you degrade your spouse in front of your kids? Are you faithful at work? Are you faithfully married? And I think subset of that, we could say, are you faithful single? In your singleness, are you faithful to the Lord? What are you doing in your free time? How are you going on dates? What are you looking for in a spouse? Are you faithful? Number three, sober-minded. Sober-minded, that's not a word that we throw around a lot, at least I don't, right, because I'm ignorant, right? I'll admit it. Sober-minded literally means free from intoxicating influences, which we'll get to alcohol here in a minute. But are there influencers in your life? Teenagers, what's the biggest influencer in your life? Time and time again, it says parents are the biggest influencers, whether kids want to admit it or not. What they do or don't do influences kids. Who influences you? What are the influences in your life? What's influencing you, your mind, your worldview, your parenting, your emotions, your concept of God, your concept of self, your concept of the world? Being sober-minded means that we do not allow ourselves to be captivated by any type of influence that would lead us away from sound judgment. Are you being influenced by the Word of God or are you being influenced by anything but the Word of God? Things that will affect our sober-mindedness, just a few things, right? What you watch on TV. What do you watch? What are you binge watching? What are you allowing to come into your home? What do you listen to, both music and podcasts? There are a lot of toxic podcasts that we listen to. What are you reading? Who are you reading? A lot of you guys are champs at reading, but what are you reading? Are you reading good, godly things? Are you reading smut? Are you reading trash? Are you reading things that distract you from the desires your heavenly Father has upon you? Are you sober minded? Our next point is self-controlled. Self-controlled. When I think of self-control, I think of Titus, right? If you've read Titus, like it seems like every other word that Paul says to Titus is self-control. Be self-controlled be self-controlled right and I think that as as young people we need like to be told self-control 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 and so now that I'm approaching middle-age right uh, I'm hoping that that slows down a little bit for me Um, but still as a middle-aged individual I need self-control right as a as a teenager or as a chronologically matured individual you need self-control right We can struggle with self-control in tons of ways. From our tongues of what and how we speak about people to how we eat, to our financial spending habits. Are you self-controlled? Is that a word that you would use of yourself to describe yourself? That you have self-control. Number five there, respectable. Do people respect you? Just plain and simple. Do you have respect when you walk through your office, when you walk into your family Christmas? Do people respect you because of the way you carry yourself, by the way you behave, by the things you say, by the things you don't say? Are you respected? Are you respected because of your character, your attitude, your work ethic? Has the transformation of the gospel made you respectable to others? Number six, hospitable. This is one of the areas that I believe modern-day Christians struggle mightily with. Are you hospitable daily? Are you hospitable daily? Not just once a year because you hosted your family Christmas, but are you hospitable daily? Daily, are you hospitable? Do you have margins in your schedule and your to-do list for divine interruptions? Do you schedule? Like some of you are schedulers, right? Like I'm a scheduler. I have a to-do list every day. Like that's the first thing I do is I write down a to-do list uh, every day. And I get frustrated if I don't get everything marked off on my to-do list, right? Let's, you know who I am, right? Some of you can relate. But I wonder, do we schedule in margins of time for divine interruptions, right? Like you think about the, the good Samaritan. What if he didn't have room for the, the beaten down man on the side of the road, right? It wasn't on his to-do list. I don't think it was when he started that morning. And I, I'm shameful to say that there have been times when, when ministry opportunities present themselves and I'm like, oh, but I've got this list. I'm not gonna get this list done with this person sitting with me, right? Like that's a reality. That's not a godly reality. That's a sinful reality that I have to confess And ask God's forgiveness for and I'm doing that corporately do you have time for interruptions Rosaria Butterfield writes an excellent book on hospitality that's entitled the gospel comes with a house key practicing radically ordinary hospitality in a post-christian world Rosaria Butterfield it's an excellent book if you can read that book and not be convicted then praise the Lord you are far superior to me in your spiritual walk Um, But maybe you just need to read that book this year, right? Because you don't understand hospitality. You don't get why you should be hospitable. To be clear, hospitality is more than opening your home. But it's not less. You don't have to be retired or living in Shadow Creek to practice hospitality. You can be single. You can be busy. You can have young children. You can live in an apartment. You can live in Bonavista and be hospitable. You know, this morning I was praying for my neighbors. I signed up years ago to this thing that Tim gave us about praying for our neighbors. And so daily I get five neighbors to pray for that live within a circumference around my house. And I was just thinking, I knew this was coming up, and I just wondered, do any of my neighbors know that I'm hospitable? What would they say about me? Because only a handful of them have ever been in my house. And I think it's like, you know, praise the Lord, when I got like one of my neighbors to wave at me, right? Like it took like eight years, and it was really because of my son waving that he waved back. But like that was like, oh, I'm spiritual now, I'm hospitable. How many of my neighbors have I had into my home? How many people from this church have you had into your home? How many people from work have you had to your home? Some of you are phenomenal at this, right? Right? But the vast majority of us are like, that's me, time, that's my castle, that's my palace, that's my solitude of whatever. Are we hospitable? Are we hospitable, hospitable not only to those people we like, but those people we don't like? Oh, man. That one's hard. That one's hard for me, right? Because we want to be around people we like, but are we hospitable to those we don't like? All right, enough of that. Seven, able to teach. Able to teach. Man, this is, uh, for some reason, many within our church believe that only the the ability to teach is for like a select few. And I, for the life of me, do not see where that comes from Scripture. Now, I do believe that that, um, the Bible tells us be careful and you have high responsibilities when you teach. I think those are in formal settings. But I think, I'm just i convinced by the Word of God that every follower of Christ should be a teacher. Formally or informally, you should teach. I don't see how you can read the Great Commission where we're to go, we're to open our mouths and share the gospel and not think you're to be a teacher. Okay? And so that's going to happen at different levels. It's going to happen with with different settings, right? Some of us are going to do that formally and informally. But we all, I believe, I'm convicted, I can't be more convicted about anything in God's Word, I don't think, that we're to be teachers. And too many of us say, that's not my spiritual gift, because I took this inventory that some dude wrote like 50 years ago, and it said I'm not a teacher, so I told you, Scott, I'm not a teacher. Don't hand me that, okay? Look at God's Word. And see if God's Word doesn't say we're to grow in our understanding of who God is. And as we're growing and as we're understanding more, we don't just kind of store all that up in our mind and just die very smart and very spiritual. The Bible tells us we grab other people and we take them with us. And sometimes we grab them kicking and screaming. And sometimes we're just behind them pushing them say, Please, please listen. And so that's going to look different at different levels. I'm not saying everyone in here has to be a Sunday school teacher. Everyone in here has to be a life group facilitator. Everyone has to work on the third floor teaching a small group or teaching a lesson on the second floor. But I am saying we all should be able to teach. Right? You should be able to teach. And I, friends, one of my prayers for our church is that we have a church full of men and women who are mad because they don't have the opportunity to teach God's Word. We're not there. Because it continues to, it just, it breaks my heart that when a Sunday school teacher says, hey, I'm going to be out because I'm sick, I'm going on vacation, and my class is going to go with brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. Because no other adult can open God's Word and teach one lesson. I I just got to believe that grieves the heart of God that people that have been walking with the Lord for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years can't teach one lesson? Friends, I pray, and that's on me. And I'm I'm not yelling at you, I'm yelling at me. Because my job, my goal is to develop, to equip the saints for the ministry of God's church. And so that's one of my objectives. You want to pray for me about something? Pray that I would figure out how to do that. Pray that I would be able to articulate that and not just beat people up. I'm not trying to throw haymakers at you guys. I'm trying to just say I love you and I want, us to, I want us to understand God's word and I want us to live in communion with him and I want us to seek what God desires for us. So are you able to teach? Are you growing in your understanding, your ability to do that formally or informally? We got to scooch. Number eight, sober. Paul specifically says, not a drunkard. I changed it um, because I want all of them to be positive, right? Because I'm a positive guy. All right, so maybe this is the year you put the bottle down. You just put it down because you can't face your family without a drink. You can't face your job. You can't face uh, doing your taxes. You can't face life without some sort of substance help. I'm praying that this would be the year that you just lay the bottle down. Be sober. Number nine, gentle. Paul says not violent, but gentle. How many of us in this room are known for being gentle? As guys, I think this is, we struggle mightily with this because we're like, oh, I don't want to be effeminate. Are we gentle? Are we gentle? doesn't mean that we don't speak truth, that we don't stand for truth, but are we gentle in doing that? Many of us are like me. We're like a a sledgehammer, right? We're not gentle at all. Are you gentle? Paul says we are to be gentle. Number 10, peaceful. Paul actually says not quarrelsome, and he says this in a lot of his letters. Like once you see this word, you can't not see it, right? Especially if you're like me, and this is a sin you struggle with. Are you a peacemaker, or are you an arguer? I don't know what it is. I don't want to be quarrelsome, but it just comes so naturally and easy just like to argue. It doesn't matter what it's about. And you know what is so, like, just will knock you flat on the floor? It's when you see your seven-year-old arguing with you over something stupid, like how to dribble a basketball. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You're going to argue with me. You don't even know what a basketball is. You're going to argue with me how to do it? Like, and I think... That's the same way I treat God. That's the same way. Like, I, are you quarrelsome or are you peaceful? I pray that we would be a peaceful assembly of God's people. That doesn't mean we don't speak up for those who have no voice. It doesn't mean that, that we don't advocate for issues and policies. But we do it peacefully. We do it peacefully. Be peacemakers, not pot stirs. Number 11, content. Paul says, not lovers of money, and I changed it to content. Do you love money? That may be a struggle for you. I love, once again, the song this morning, I'd Rather Have Jesus. Man, I wonder, are you content with your family, your job, your house? Or are you a lover of money and you want a bigger house, more land, shinier car, quicker computer, softer couch? Are you content? God has been so good to us. He's been so kind to us. But how often do we stop and just say, thank you, Jesus, instead of complaining about what we don't have, what we didn't get, what's been done against us? Are you content? Number 12, manage household. Paul really pushes into the home life and how specifically fathers are to lead their homes. But I wonder, how do you Manage your home. I don't have time to to go off on a tangent. I really want to about dads being dads biblically. Right, fellas? If you want to know about what, what God expects of you, and it's different than what he expects of women, and we need to understand that. We need to be okay with that, women and men. But start reading some of God's Word. Look in Genesis Look in Deuteronomy 6. Look in Psalm 78. Look in Psalm 112. Look in Ephesians 5 and 6. Look in Colossians. Look, and you will see that there is an expectation for fathers. And so many of us in here, men, we're just, ah, it's hard. It's tough. That's not popular. It's not cool. It's, it's going to cause me some embarrassment. Oh, my goodness. Are we managing our household? Are we managing our household? Not is your house perfect? Are your Instagram posts perfect and pristine? But are you managing your household? Thirteen, care for the church. I mean, I almost missed this one. Um, But Paul has a high view of the local church, and we'd expect this as a church planner, but most of his letters are written specifically to strengthen the local church. I wonder, do you care about the local church? And I just want to push into that a little bit more. I don't excuse you for being here as you caring for the local church, just so we're clear on that. But do you care for the local church? And many of you do. Many of you so do. But many of you are consumer-driven, right? What can the church do for me? We, we mistake our wants for our needs. Do we understand the difference as it comes to the church? Or are we just here as long as the church does what I think the church ought to do? I don't ever read God's word, but I know what the church ought to do. And when the church doesn't do that, well, then I'm going to take my talents elsewhere. Friends, do we care? Do we grieve? Do we pray? Do we rejoice in the church being the church? We have a phenomenal church that's made up of phenomenal individuals that I'm looking at right now. And I wonder do we care? Do we care? As, as many of you guys know, we're down staff, right? We're down, and we need people to step up. We need people to step up and to, to take on ownership and take on responsibilities and to be the church. And I pray, do we care? Or do we just want power? Do we just want authority? Do we just want recognition? Man, it's so tricky, man. Our, our minds and our hearts are so fickle. and we. Ugh. But do you care? For the church, do you have a biblical understanding of the importance and necessity of the local church? Can you, we could do a whole other sermon on can you write out what and why the church exists? Can you prove it with biblical references? Or do you merely come to church because your mama told you to? That's not a bad thing. More mamas need to tell you that. But that's not the best thing. That's not the end thing. That's not what God's word says. Will you go to church because your mom told you that? No, that's not what's in there. I don't have time to unpack that. I'm sorry, but we can have lunch sometime if you want to talk about it. You care for the church. And our 14th and last thing is a good reputation. Paul closes out by evaluating the reputation in the community. Do you know that people judge Beaverdam based on you? If you are a shady businessman or woman? Guess what people think about Beaver Dam? They think Beaver Dam's shady. If you're sleazy, guess what people think about Beaver Dam? If you're sexist with the bank teller, guess what people think about Beaver Dam? Do you understand that? So goes you, so goes Beaver Dam. That's why my desire is for us to understand these things. And once again. I'm not saying I've perfectly attained all 14 of these attributes. I'm not a 10 on all of them. You all know that. But are we desiring to have a godly, biblical reputation in our community? At the ballpark, on the PTO board, in the boardroom. Are we seeking to be godly, to be biblical, even when it hurts? even when we have to, like, stand on our hands or on our lips to be quiet, and that's me, right? Are we individuals that live these 14 attributes that people will notice? If we do, they will notice. The opportunities to speak of Christ will increase. When we're hitting these marks, right, as individuals, right, people will notice and they will ask us questions that are different than the questions they ask us now. And we'll have the opportunity to to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll have an opportunity to talk about how the Holy Spirit took you from just a a knucklehead and and molded you by by the patience and the grace of the Heavenly Father who molded you over time, not overnight, into the man that represents these characteristics. Are you willing to put in the work? It is difficult. It is hard. It is painstaking. But are you willing? I know I get paid to be good, and you are good for nothing. Wait, that didn't come out right. Um, No, seriously. Life is hard. Life is hard. The Christian walk is difficult, friends. I'm not trying to say it's easy. It's not a cakewalk. 2020 is going to be difficult. There's going to be death. There's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be birthdays. There's going to be rejoicing. There's going to be new jobs. There's going to be new children. There's going to be all kinds of things happening in 2020. And so I can't tell you what is and is not going to happen in 2020. But I can tell you that God expects you to grow in your faith. He expects me to grow in my faith. And I wonder, are we maturing in Christ? Do we desire to mature? Are we praying, Holy Spirit, grow me into the man you desire me to be? Grow me. I began this morning by saying I'd like for us corporately to be able to articulate what spiritual maturity looks like. I went on to say that I fear that many are ignorant of what the Bible expects. And in the past few minutes, I've tried to establish 14 attributes that the Bible says the Christian should aspire to. Because I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be like, well, I don't know what God wants me to do. I gave you 14 things, right? 14 goals, 14 New Year's resolutions, right? I want to grow in these areas. And I pray, are we, willing to grow? Are we willing to, to look in the mirror and investigate how am I doing in these areas, God? Help me identify these things. You see, I pray that 2020 is a phenomenal year for you. But more than I desire it to be phenomenal, I pray it is a year that you and I grow in our spiritual maturity. I pray that a year from now we all look more like Christ. That by God's grace and mercy we move from threes to To fives or from sevens to eights that we progress that we grow because all of us have room to grow in each of these attributes you know what's crazy is you might mark yourself down right now as a six and a year from now by God's growing and God's uh, pleading and just pouring into you you might this time next year go man I'm really a three but you've grown exponentially over the last year and that'd be awesome praise the Lord because once again I'm not taking up your scorecard I'm just saying, do you have a scorecard? Are you aware that God has an expectation for your life? Let me pray for us. Father.